Well, good morning, everybody. What, a, what an amazing story, Wayne and Lucy. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. Um, would you please bow your heads and, and open our message in prayer this morning? Lord God, we truly thank you for your mercies that are new this morning. Now we come and pray that you would prepare us for this message. Help us and see and understand with clarity. And God, may your spirit be present with us, and may you move in our hearts. Thank you for your word that transcends all understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I love to bake bread. I love to cook. And while there is some flexibility when you do that, you've got to follow a recipe, or at least a general, general idea. And bakers, they call this a ratio, and they'll use a different percentage for different breads. So much flour, so much water, so much yeast, so much salt. Put too much flour in, and you'll have a really dry and inedible lump. Too much water, and you'll have a mess that you can't form. And so we use these recipes and ratios to, to help and guide us, to, to give us something to shoot towards and to help us achieve an end goal. And now sometimes we can think of the Christian like this too. Both churchy people and people in the church for the first time will have ideas of what it means to be a Christian. Some, will, some might say it takes a cup of faith, a half cup of prayer, and so on and so on. And to confuse it even more, different people in church and in church history tend to focus on different ingredients. So take, for example, the, the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther. He was an incredible theologian. He was a rigorous student of the Bible, and he felt that the church at the time was overemphasizing the idea of works, the idea that you have to do certain things in order to earn favor with God. So he saw no standard for this in the Bible, and he brought up these 95 objections to the Roman Catholic Church, and he, he nailed them to the door in Wittenberg. And for example, number 37, any true Christian, whether living or dead, participates in all the blessings of Christ and the church, and this is granted him by God, even without indulgence letters. Indul indulgence letters were this thing in the Roman Catholic Church at the time where, where after confessing or doing some godly work, the church would issue you a letter for, the per for that person, exempting them from, from sins, from the punishment of their sins. And Luther saw no standard for this in the Bible. And instead, he, he was a great student of the Apostle Paul, and, and he really drew out our understanding of justification by faith alone, and that we are saved by faith in Christ for the glory of God. And that is where we are today, because we're going to study the second half of, of the chapter of uh, the, the book of James, and Martin Luther could not stand the book of James. He chose to disregard it in his studies. And so we have this great theologian and Bible scholar that's disregarding this book. And we, of course we need to ask, you know, why, why, why is that? And it was because in his eyes, James is focusing too much on works. And Luther was afraid that James was contradicting Paul. But the reality is that James is not contradicting Paul, and he's got some really important things to tell the church, to tell us. So James, 
today is going to tell us that it's not necessarily about getting the ratio perfect or about finding a perfect recipe for a perfect Christian, but he's going to show us two things that work together in the Christian life to bring glory to God. So if you haven't already, please open your books to James, uh, your Bibles to, uh, to James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And we'll read 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And now James is talking a lot about practical theology here, but the issue for him is the doctrine of salvation. And much of the confusion between James and Paul on this, uh, this idea is just that, a confusion. If we look at the, the, the Greek word, erga, that's, that's translated as, as, as works or deeds here, um, we often see it in Paul's writings as translated as works of righteousness. But in James, here, it's rightfully translated as deeds of righteousness. So Paul tells us that we're not saved by works, and now you read James, and James seems to be telling you that faith without works is no good. It's confusing. But it's important to understand that both Paul and both James are trying to say the same thing. Because trying, trying to earn your favor with God, trying to be good, trying to do the right things, is not going to earn you anything before God. And that's not what James is saying. Because we're saved by faith alone through Jesus Christ. But what James is talking about is deeds of righteousness, not works of the law, as Paul usually uses the word. And I don't think Paul would have had any argument with James on this matter. He'd both expect and demand it himself. And this kind of ambiguity in language is hard for us when we're separated from a culture or a language. But we have ambiguity in our day, too. You know, If I were to say something like this, if a man were to shoot his grandmother at a distance of 500 yards... I should call him a good shot, but not necessarily a good man. <laughs> you know, it's the, it's the same word. So with this understanding, James really is saying, what good is it, brothers or sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds of righteousness? And then we move to the next rhetorical question. Can such faith save him? Can faith that is empty of good deeds save us? It's an age-old question. Does every brand of faith save? Is there a faith that does not? And James argues here, a faith that knows the theology but has no actions does not save. No, quite frankly, there is a faith that is dry and dead and does not save. You, you can't take a bowl of flour, sprinkle yeast over it, and shove it in the oven and expect a loaf of bread to come out. In the same way, you can't have faith void of anything else and expect it to be real. So look, look at 15 through 17. Again, this is uh, James' first case study in this passage. He's saying, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. This example is a standard biblical one, right? It's a self-evident, no-nonsense stock phrase with numerous Old Testament references. It's an example that anybody in the audience would, would be able to relate to. If you meet someone who has a direct need, 
and all that you offer them are mere words or platitudes, and then, and then you walk away? What, what, what good are your words? They, they mean nothing. They may just as well not have been uttered. James calls this dead. You're not actually helping this person. But it's not about finding a perfect balance between good deeds and, and how to add them to your faith in order to secure it or how to make your faith real. That kind of stuff is, is, is false teaching. That, that's heresy. You can't do anything to earn salvation, and you can't earn gold stars with God by doing certain things. The contrast, more so, is between two different kinds of faith, a dead one and a living one. I love the two pictures behind me, and I want you to use them as an illustration as we move through this passage this morning. Faith without deeds is just like that tree there, dead. One is dead, one is alive. But it's not that you merely add deeds to your faith to make it come alive. You don't throw deeds at faith. It's, it's just like a tree. It starts at the roots, and actions are a necessary constituent of true faith. A tree grows up from its roots. The health of the soil and the root structure is revealing itself in vibrant leaves full of color. Without deeds or actions, faith is not really true faith. It's an imposter of true faith. At a close inspection, it might look like a real tree, but if you step up close to it, you can see that it's not real. It doesn't matter if you condition the soil, you fertilize it, and you water it every day. It's dead. Faith by itself is dead. This is a hard message. It's a scary one. It ought to scare us. It should make us nervous. And our natural response to this message, I think, is to run out of these church doors and try to do as many good things as we possibly can so that we can feel certain that, that God does look at us with favor. But again, that's false teaching too. The truth is we're not good people. We're people that are clad with sin. Alone by ourselves, we don't stand righteous before God. We have failed him over and over and over again. And we choose our own selfish ways. But despite this ugliness that is within us, God sent his son to save us. Christ carried our sins to the cross, and he sacrificed his son for us. Now, God does not look at us and see righteousness. He looks at us through Christ. He sees Christ's righteousness, which has been imputed or attributed to us. And God is so holy that it could never have been any other way. He is so holy that he could never just disregard our sin, you know, rip up the ticket and say that it's okay. But Christ, who was without sin, became our sacrifice, and we are called righteous before God through Christ. That, this is the gospel, okay? We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ by the grace of God for the glory of God. Now, I really learned the difficulty of this message when I moved to Chicago to go to school because I quickly learned that there was a person of need at every street corner and all along the sidewalks. You could literally not go anywhere without seeing somebody that was asking for your help. Your walk to anywhere would instantly be filled with guilt. Because, of course, you cannot help everybody. So, so you'd hop in the car to go somewhere, thinking that you'd be free from guilt in the car. But no, you pull up to a red light or a stop sign, and there would be people there, too, asking for your help. So you'd feel guilty in the car, too. So now, 
Is the heart of today's message that we should go out and help everybody? Is James telling the freshman me going to school in Chicago that, you know, I'm sorry, kid, but you can't go to Chick-fil-A for dinner tonight because, because your faith is only real if you help all these people? No. I don't, I don't think that's what James is saying because, because a message like that is brewing on guilt and, and not the gospel. And, and guilt is not from God. God does not motivate us through guilt. And when we act on our guilt, it's most often only to make ourselves feel better. It's not an act of love towards another, but an act of love towards ourselves. And now there were times when I gave some of my money or some of my leftover pizza and uh, all that stuff. But was it to make myself feel good? Like I had done something right? Or was I actually helping this person? Was I effectually saying, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed? It's possible. I'm not saying that those things were wrong to do, but I think James is telling us that that's not enough. And I learned myself that that was not enough. A few days later, I'd be on my way to Chick-fil-A again. No judging, please. You would too if you lived a few blocks away. (laughs) And the same people would be around their favorite spots again. The guy who had been blessed with my pizza had no idea who I was. The pizza had no lasting effect on him. Now, hopefully he was able to eat it, and hopefully it quenched any hunger that he had. But the next day, he was hungry again. And now, two different years, I partook in ministry that targeted people in need. One year, and I a couple other students, we we wheeled food from the cafeteria over to the the local YMCA where uh, residents lived in government housing. And we'd serve the meal to them, we'd sit down with them, we'd watch TV, we'd pray every week, Wednesday night. And the next year, as one church cooked a meal for the homeless, me and a couple other guys would go there and have a Bible study with them before. And there were times when I didn't really want to go and do this, but I went every week. And as the weeks passed, and as some of these people began to notice a continuity in us, knowing that we'd be there every Wednesday night, we'd have a meal for them every Wednesday night, we ended up having some really good conversations. There was a world of difference between throwing money or pizza at somebody randomly and actually committing to people at a place at a certain time each week. I think this is what James is getting at. You can't be everywhere and help everybody. But if you have faith in the God of the Bible, who is holy, just, compassionate, merciful, loving, you need need to live a life of compassion, mercy, and love too. Because our God is a God who saw people in need. He's the one that stops by the well and offers the Samaritan woman what she actually needs. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, Jesus said in John 14, 13. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst again. Or take the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan saw this person that was beaten and laying on the side of the road, half dead, people walking past him. But the Samaritan did something. He took pity on the person. He bandaged his wounds. He put the man on his own donkey, which probably meant that he had to walk himself, and he brought him to an inn, and he took some money, and he paid the innkeeper so the man could stay there and heal. Good deeds is not something that we put on and merely do, but it's an outpouring of the faith that is in our hearts. The answer is not to go and do things and try to earn those gold stars with God. The answer is to better understand the gospel. Let's read 18 through 20. 
But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? So faith by itself does not work. James introduces an imaginary critic here. You have faith, I have deeds. Some might be good at doing good things for others, and others might be good at the faith thing. Show me your faith without deeds, James says, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. I will show you my faith by what I do, by who I am. He's not saying, I will, do, I will go and do good things to make my faith real before God. No, he's saying, I will show you my faith is real by who I am, by the things I do. We know that a tree is alive and thriving because of what it is, because of what it shows us, because of what it's doing. It's growing. It's cracking its bark. It's budding. It's revealing leaves. Faith without deeds, you believe there's a God? Good. Even the demons believe that. Even the demons have a theology. They have faith. They have faith in the sense that they know there's a God. They know who God is. But is their faith going to save them? No. They shake with terror because of the judgment that awaits them. But then good deeds by themselves do not work either. And that is really the, the, the expertise of Paul, the Apostle Paul. And if we just glance at Romans 3, 19, 20, Paul says, Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And this was the biggest issue of the Reformation. We are saved by faith alone, not by works of the law. Nothing we do, no matter how good we are, can save us. It is our faith in Christ that saves us. And now, there's a big movement going on today. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's called um, Random Acts of Kindness. And people that carry out these random acts of kindness, they're even called Ractivists. They say that they believe in the power of kindness to change the way people see and experience the world. And now, this is a wonderful idea, and the heart behind it is good. But does random acts of kindness really change how we see and experience the world? It might brighten our day, but at the end of the day, the world is still a really broken, messy place. You might walk out of the restaurant ecstatic that somebody paid for your meal, only to go home and watch the news and, and see the latest thing that's wrong with this world. Random acts of kindness do not change this world. They can't. They're a great thing, and it's important for us to be kind to our neighbors, but random acts of kindness will never change this world because the world is too messed up. It's too dark. It's too far gone. Real effect on this world, however, is gospel-fueled. And gospel-fueled, living, vibrant faith is faith and action that's working together. So let's look at verses 21 through 26 here. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says... 
Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So first, in the book of Genesis, God tested Abraham, right? God asked Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, and to go to the mountain and sacrifice his son as a burnt offering. And I'm sure Abraham felt what any parent would at this prospect. It's terrible. But he did not question God. He built an altar. He arranged the wood. He placed Isaac on it. God eventually stopped Abraham, but Abraham had proved that his faith was not empty. His faith and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. He believed God. He knew who God was. And he was ready to sacrifice his own son because he knew that God had a bigger plan with him. Abraham's righteousness was a faith in a supreme God that was accompanied with his actions. He did not just believe God, but his faith was ready to act even when it made no sense. And then Rahab, the prostitute. Her story, too, is remarkable. Joshua, the Israelite commander, had sent two spies into the city of Jericho to spy on the land before their invasion. And they arrived at Rahab's house. She brought on herself a great risk when she chose to hide the two Israelites. And she hid them, and she even sent the king in a different direction when he came to look for them. Her faith moved her to action, and she too was considered righteous for what she did. And now this whole idea of faith and action together, again, is also embodied in Paul's words. So from Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's what gospel-fueled faith looks like. Faith and action together. We are saved by faith, but we are created to do good works. Faith by itself is dead. Works by themselves miss the mark altogether. A gospel-fueled, living, vibrant faith is faith and action working together. And now what does that really look like for us today? I have a feeling that many of you may be confused or bewildered. You don't really know what side is up. I think that's what happened to, to, to Luther. But that, 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 that's not my goal, and I don't think that's the goal of James either. And now there's a lot of theology in this passage, and often we'll shy away from theology because, because it's heady. And sometimes theologians feel like you know, these sports commentators that really do turn things over, and they analyze these bizarre facts that nobody even knows what, what they mean. But there's a couple of things that we really do need to remember. And the first thing is that Christ has already secured our salvation through faith in him. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration of renewal of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3.5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. Deeds or actions 
refer to our present day living out of the faith that has already saved us. We do not earn more gold stars or secure a better standing with God by the things that we do. But we are created to do good works and our actions reflect the faith that is within us. If we have no compassion on the people around us, it is possible that our faith is actually not real. When Christ calls us, it's not a calling to comfort, stability, and security. Bonhoeffer says it's a, it's a call to come and die, and that's the truth. It's a calling to come and die to your old self, and real faith produces heart change. Your heart's no longer the same. And, of course, we've got to ask ourselves, why, why do good actions, good deeds matter? Is it, is it to feel good about ourselves? Is it to make other people feel good? Is that the end goal? No. That's perhaps the end goal of the, the, the Random Acts of Kindness organization. But for us, it's about being the hands and feet of Jesus. It's about living in a way that manifests the Lord and Savior to a world that's broken. It's about understanding the bigger picture going on. Abraham and Rahab did. What they did made no sense, but they saw the bigger picture. And so we've got to ask, how can we be practical Abrahams and Rahabs today? And the answer is, we can all do this wherever we are in life. It's not about doing random acts of kindness, but it's about living in such a way that speaks to the world about Jesus Christ. It's to live under the umbrella of the gospel with an awareness of the larger picture at hand and to allow the understanding of our faith that has already saved us to affect how we interact and deal with the people around us. And we need to understand that, it's, that good deeds, actions, they're not like a piece of clothing that we put on when we're at certain places. It's easy for us to cloak ourselves with good deeds when we're at church, a church function, or a mission trip to a large city. But if our faith is real, it has to fundamentally change who we are. I have seen, and I'm sure you have too, the Christians who will be on fire for Christ at a church function. They're helping, they're serving, they're loving on people. But then after the function, they've gone to a restaurant, and all of a sudden they're angry about something, and they're being flat-out rude to the waitress. And now, it's not about trying to paint ourselves, a picture of, of ourselves as, as perfect and like we have it all together or anything like that, because we don't. And, but that's why we need to come back to the gospel over and over again. We need to come back to God in repentance, and we need to ask for His strength. Because your biggest ministry is not the things you do at church, at that church function, your biggest ministry is your day-to-day -day life and interactions with people where you're at, whether that is school, work, the grocery store, the restaurant, and anywhere in between. Even in your family. That is where people can truly come to see something different about you. And that is where you truly have the opportunity to tell them why you are different. Because you have been saved by the amazing grace of God. As many of you know, my family owns and operates a campground here in Ludington. And I, as a family, we seek to reflect Christ in all that we do, and we look for opportunities to be different. And there are times when we make business decisions that may not make total sense, but we know that our business is not the end for us. Of course, we want our business to be successful, and we all depend on it, but it's not the end for us. 
So I just have a short little example from, from this spring. Um, our seasonal campers organize a potluck every Tuesday, and they really love coming together and, and enjoying a meal. And, and this, this Tuesday in spring, right before when everybody was seated and, and, and the meal was being prepared, a man drove up in his car on the campsite right adjacent to the clubhouse building, and big windows were facing him. And there were several people that, were, you know, that started snickering between themselves. Who's that guy? What's, what, what's he doing there? Uh, is he really going to camp in his car like that? And of course, as owners responsible for all of our guests' experience, we get uncomfortable when, when people point out something like that. But my mother-in-law, who was at the time outside, she walked up to this man, and she just invited him to come and, and, and enjoy the, the, the meal with us. No strings attached. He didn't have to bring anything. He didn't have to worry. And as he walked into the clubhouse there, I think it shocked a lot of people in the room. And I think many of them didn't even look at him for the duration of the meal. But the next day, he, next day he came up to the office, and he was so, so thankful and so grateful for us, allowing him to come through the door and have a meal like that. Now, my mother-in-law, she did not put on a cloak of good deeds, but out of her heart, she saw an opportunity to serve, and she just took it. No matter where we are, no matter who we are, we can do things that might be against the grain of our culture, against the grain of what other people in our profession do. But we are able to do those things because we know the bigger picture. We know who our God is, and we seek to bring glory to him through all that we do in life, just like Abraham and Rahab were able to do. And now we will fail. I fail. But it's not about being perfect. And it's not about having the perfect recipe with the perfect ratio and getting it right all the time. It's about our faith in the God who was so rich in his love and mercy that he sacrificed his own son so that we may be saved and reconciled with God. Despite our sinful hearts. And this reality overflows into our hearts and the natural outpouring of that reality should, should be for us to ask, now what can I do? I believe these things about God. I believe Christ has done these things for me. Now what can I do? What can I do to actually reveal to a broken, messed up world that there is a Savior, a Savior who loves us and who has already paid the price? So whether you're a teacher, you're a contractor, you're a waitress, you're a salesperson, what can you do? Whether you're at home, you're at work, on your way somewhere, what can you do? Ask God to reveal these things to you. Allow God to change your heart. Ask Him and allow Him to change it so that out of your heart flows His love, His compassion, and His mercy, and His grace towards others. This is my prayer for myself, and I need to pray daily. Lord, forgive me. Lord, change me. Lord, use me. Know who you are in Christ, but don't leave it at mere knowledge of who God is. Go and be his hands and feet. Let's, let's pray. Lord God, forgive us for our sins. Change our sinful hearts. Use us for your glory. All praise and glory unto your name. Amen.